Elder Maxwell, we thank our Father in Heaven for the miraculous extension of your apostolic ministry. We're grateful that your declaration and your testimony has continued on into this beautiful new pavilion. We love you and we pray for you. And President Hinckley, if I may, on behalf of 11 million members of this Church, may we thank the Lord for the extension of your ministry. I remember explicitly the groundbreaking service for this building just under three years ago that you conducted. And in his invocation in that service, President Boyd K. Packer, asking for safety in construction and beauty in completion, asked one more favor of heaven, and that is, President, that you would be allowed to see this site and preside at this pulpit and declare your testimony here. We all thank heaven for you and for that answer to prayer. These surely are some of the days which our faithful forefathers and those ahead of us far-sighted saw. In the earliest years of the Restoration, in a general conference of the Church in April of 1844, the Brethren recalled those first gatherings of 1830. One of them said, We talked about the kingdom of God as if we had the world at our command. We talked with great confidence and talked big things, although we were not many in number. We looked, and if we did not see this congregation, we saw by vision the Church of God, a thousand times larger than it was then, although at the time we were not enough to well-man a farm or meet a woman with a milk pail. All the members of the Church met in a conference in a room twenty feet square. We talked then, he continues, about people coming as doves to the windows, that all nations should flock unto the Church. If we had told the people what our eyes behold this day, we should not have been believed. Well. If that was their feeling in that fateful year of 1844, just prior to Joseph Smith's martyrdom, what must those same brethren and sisters see from their eternal home on a day like this? So much has happened since then for which they and we need to be grateful. And of course this is not the end. We have much work to do in both the quality and quantity of our faithfulness and our service. George A. Smith, counselor in the First Presidency to President Brigham Young, once said by way of caution, We may build temples, erect stately domes, magnificent spires and grand towers in honor of our religion, but if we fail to live the principles of that religion and to acknowledge God in all our thoughts, we shall fall short of the blessings which its practical exercise would ensure. 
We must be humble and conscientious. The honor and the glory of all that is good goes to God. And there is much still ahead of us that will be refining, even difficult, as He leads us from strength to strength. In all of this, my mind has turned to those early saints who are too often lost to history, those who quietly and faithfully bore the kingdom forward through far more difficult days. So many of them seem almost nameless to us now. Most went unheralded to their graves, often early graves. Some few made it into a line or two of Church history, but most have come and gone with neither high office nor history's regard. These folks, our collective ancestors, slipped into eternity as quietly and anonymously as they lived their religion. These are the silent saints of whom President J. Reuben Clark once spoke. When he thanked them all, especially he said the meekest and lowliest of them, largely unknown and unremembered, except round the hearthstones of their children and their children's children, who passed down from generation to generation the story of their faith. Whether longtime member or newest of converts, we are the beneficiaries of such faithful forebearers. In this beautiful new building and in this historic conference convened in it, I have sensed how much I owe to those who had so much less than I, but who seem in virtually every case to have done more with it to build the kingdom than I have done. Perhaps it has always been so down through the dispensations. Jesus once reminded His disciples that they were reaping in fields wherein they had bestowed no labor. Moses said to his people earlier, The Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land which He sware unto thy fathers, to give thee great and goodly cities which thou buildest not, and houses full of all good things which thou fillest not, and wells digged which thou diggest not, vineyards and olive trees which thou plantest not. My mind goes back 167 years to a little handful of women, older men, and those children that could labor who were left to keep construction going on the Kirtland Temple while virtually every other man well enough to do so had undertaken a relief march of a thousand miles to aid the Saints in Missouri. The records indicate that quite literally every woman in Kirtland was engaged in knitting and spinning in order to clothe the men and boys laboring on the temple. Elder Heber C. Kimball wrote, The Lord only knows the scenes of poverty, tribulation, and distress which we pass through to accomplish this. It was recorded that one leader of the day, looking upon the suffering and poverty of the Church, frequently went upon the walls of that building by day and by night, weeping and crying aloud to the Almighty to send means whereby they might finish that building. It was not any easier when the Saints moved west and began to settle in these valleys. As a young man of primary and ironic priesthood age, I attended church in the grand old St. George Tabernacle, construction for which had begun in 1863. During very lengthy sermons, I would amuse myself by gazing about the building, admiring the marvelous pioneer craftsmanship that had built that striking facility. Did you know, by the way, that there are 184 clusters of grapes carved into the ceiling cornice of that building? 
Some of those sermons were really long. <laughs> but most of all, I enjoyed counting the window panes—2,244 of them—because I grew up on the story of Peter Nielsen, one of those little-noted and now-forgotten saints of whom we've been speaking. In the course of constructing that tabernacle, the local brethren had ordered the glass for the windows from New York and had it shipped around the Cape to California. But a bill of $800 was due and payable before the panes could be picked up and delivered to St. George. Brother David H. Cannon, later to preside over the St. George Temple being built at the same time, was charged with the responsibility of raising the needed funds. After painstaking effort, the entire community, giving virtually everything they had to these two monumental building projects, had been able to come up with $200 cash. On sheer faith, Brother Cannon committed a team of freighters to prepare to leave for California to get the glass. He continued to pray that the enormous balance of $600 would somehow be forthcoming before their departure. Living in nearby Washington, Utah, was Peter Nielsen, a Danish immigrant who had been saving for years to add on to his modest two-room adobe home. On the eve of the freighter's departure for California, Peter spent a sleepless night in that tiny little house. He thought of his conversion in far-off Denmark and his subsequent gathering with the saints in America. After coming west, he had settled and struggled to make a living in Sanpete. And then, just as some prosperity seemed imminent there, he answered the call to uproot and go to the Cotton Mission, bolstering the pathetic and sagging efforts of the alkali-soiled, malaria-plagued, flood-bedeviled settlers of Dixie. As he lay in bed that night, contemplating his years in the Church, he weighed the sacrifices asked of him against the wonderful blessings he had received. Somewhere in those private hours he made a decision. Some say it was a dream, others say an impression, still others simply a call to duty. However the direction came, Peter Nielsen arose before dawn on the morning the teams were to leave for California. With only a candle and the light of the gospel to aid him, Peter brought out of a secret hiding place $600 in gold coins—half eagles, eagles, double eagles. His wife Karen, aroused by the pre-dawn bustling, asked why he was up so early. He said only that he had to walk quickly the seven miles to St. George. As the first light of morning fell on the beautiful red cliffs of southern Utah, a knock came at David H. Cannon's door. There stood Peter Nielsen, holding a red bandana which sagged under the weight it carried. "'Good morning, David,' said Peter. "'I hope I'm not too late. You'll know what to do with this money.' With that, he turned on his heel and retraced his steps back to Washington back to a faithful and unquestioning wife, and back to a small two-room 
adobe house that remained just two rooms for the rest of his life. One other account from those early faithful builders of modern Zion. John R. Moyle lived in Alpine, Utah, about 22 miles as the crow flies to the Salt Lake Temple, where he was the chief superintendent of masonry during its construction. To make certain Brother Moyle was always at work by 8 o'clock, he would start walking about 2 a.m. on Monday mornings. He would finish his work week at 5 p.m. on Friday and then start the walk home, arriving there shortly before midnight. Each week he would repeat that schedule for the entire time he served on the construction of the temple. Once when he was home on the weekend, one of his cows bolted during milking and kicked Brother Moyle in the leg, shattering the bone just below the knee. With no better medical help than they had in such rural circumstances, his family and friends took a door off the hinges and strapped him onto that makeshift operating table. They then took the buck saw they had been using to cut branches from a nearby tree and amputated his leg just a few inches below the knee. When against all medical likelihood the leg finally started to heal, Brother Moyle took a piece of wood and carved an artificial leg. First he walked around the house, then he walked in the yard. Finally he ventured out across his property. And when he felt he could stand the pain, he strapped on his leg, walked the 22 miles to the Salt Lake Temple, climbed the scaffolding with a chisel in his hand, hammered out the declaration, Holiness to the Lord. With the faith of our fathers and mothers so evident on every side today, may I close with the remainder of the passage I cited at the outset of my remarks. It seems particularly relevant in our wonderful circumstances today. After Moses had told that earlier generation of the blessings they enjoyed because of the faithfulness of those who had gone before them, he said, Then beware lest thou forget the Lord which brought thee forth. Ye shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people which are round about you. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. He hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself. He did not choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for ye were the fewest of all people. But because he loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, know therefore that the Lord is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. We are still being blessed by that love from that God and by the faithfulness of our spiritual and literal progenitors down through a thousand 
generations. May we do as much with the blessings we have been given as they did out of the deprivations so many of them faced. In such abundance, may we never forget the Lord nor go after other gods, but always be an holy people unto the Lord. If we do so, those that hunger and thirst for the word of the Lord will continue to come as doves to our windows. They will come seeking peace and growth and salvation. If we live our religion, they will find all of that and more. We are a blessed people. In such a marvelous time of the, as this, I feel an overwhelming debt of gratitude, as do you. I thank my Father in heaven for blessings unnumbered and incalculable, first and foremost being the gift of His only begotten Son, Jesus of Nazareth, our Savior and King. I testify that Christ's perfect life and loving sacrifice constituted literally a king's ransom, an atonement willingly paid to lead us not only from death's prison but also the prisons of sorrow and sin and self-indulgence. I know that Joseph Smith beheld the Father and the Son, and that this day is a direct extension of that day. I owe much for the pre precious knowledge of which I testify here. I owe much for the priceless heritage that has been given to me. Indeed, I owe everything, and I pledge the rest of my life in giving it, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. We will long remember this inspiring conference in the new conference center. Not long ago, there was only a deep hole in the ground where this building now stands. We have watched its construction with interest and awe. The process of construction is truly inspiring to me. From conception to completion, any major building project reflects upon the work of the master creator. In fact, the creation of planet Earth and of life upon it undergirds all other creative capability. Any man-made creation is possible only because of our divine Creator. The people who design and build are given life and capacity by that Creator, and all materials used in the construction of an edifice are ultimately derived from the rich resources of the earth. The Lord declared, the earth is full, and there is enough and to spare. Yea, I prepared all things. It is difficult for mortal minds to comprehend the majesty of the creation. It is much easier for us to think about 
good things to eat or fun things to do. But I would like to stretch our minds to think of things beyond our easy grasp. The creation of man and woman was wondrous and great. So was the creation of the earth as their mortal dwelling place. The entire creation was planned by God. A council in heaven was once convened in which we participated. There our Heavenly Father announced His divine plan. It is also called the plan of happiness, the plan of salvation, the plan of redemption, the plan of restoration, the plan of mercy, the plan of deliverance, and the everlasting gospel. The purpose of the plan is to provide opportunity for the spirit children of God to progress toward an eternal exaltation. The plan required the creation, and that in turn required both the fall and the Atonement. These are the three fundamental components of the plan. The creation of a paradisiacal planet came from God. Mortality and death came into the world through the fall of Adam. Immortality and the possibility of eternal life were provided by the Atonement of Jesus Christ. The creation, the fall, and the Atonement were planned long before the actual work of the creation began. While visiting the British Museum in London one day, I read a most unusual book. It is not scripture. It is an English translation of an ancient Egyptian manuscript. From it, I quote a dialogue between the father and the son. Referring to his father, Jehovah, the premortal Lord, says, He took the clay from the hand of the angel and made Adam according to our image and likeness, and he left him lying for forty days and forty nights without putting breath into him. And he heaved sighs over him daily, saying, If I put breath into this man, he must suffer many pains. And I said unto my father, Put breath into him. I will be an advocate for him. And my father said unto me, If I put breath into him, my beloved son, thou wilt be obliged to go down into the world and to suffer many pains for him before thou shalt have redeemed him and made him to come back to his primal state. And I said unto my father, Put breath into him. I will be his advocate, and I will go down into the world and will fulfill thy command. Although this text is not scripture, it reaffirms scriptures that teach of the deep and compassionate love of the Father for the Son and of the Son for us, attesting that Jesus volunteered willingly to be our Savior and Redeemer. The Lord God declared, This is my work and my glory, to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. He who, under the direction of the Father, had created the earth, subsequently came into mortality 
to do the will of his Father and to fulfill all prophecies of the Atonement. His Atonement would redeem every soul from the penalties of personal transgression on conditions that he set. Each phase of the creation was well planned before it was accomplished. Scripture tells us that the Lord God created all things spiritually before they were naturally upon the face of the earth. The physical creation itself was staged through ordered periods of time. In Genesis and in Moses, those periods are called days. But in the Book of Abraham, each period is referred to as a time. Whether termed a day, a time, or an age, each phase was a period between two identifiable events, a division of eternity. Period one included the creation of atmospheric heavens and physical earth, culminating in the emergence of light from darkness. In period two, the waters were divided between the surface of the earth and its atmospheric heavens. Provision was made for clouds and rain to give life to all that would later dwell upon the earth. In period three, plant life began. The earth was organized to bring forth grass, herbs, trees, and vegetation, each growing from its own seed. Period four was a time of further development. Lights in the expanse of the heaven were organized, so there could be seasons and other means of measuring time. During this period, the sun, the moon, the stars, and the earth were placed in proper relationship to one another. The sun, with its vast stores of hydrogen, was to serve as a giant furnace to provide light and heat for the earth and life upon it. In period five, fish, fowl, and every living creature were added. They were made fruitful and able to multiply in the sea and on the earth, each after its own kind. In the sixth period, creation of life continued. The beasts of the earth were made after their kind, cattle after their kind, and everything which creepeth upon the earth, again after its own kind. Then the gods counseled together and said, Let us go down and form man in our image, after our likeness. So the gods went down to organize man in their own image. In the image of the gods to form they him, male and female to form they them. Thus Adam and Eve were formed, and they were blessed to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. The seventh period was designated as a time of rest. I testify that the earth and all life upon it are of divine origin. The creation did not happen by chance. It did not come ex nihilo, out of nothing. And human minds and hands able to build buildings and create computers are not accidental. It is God who made us and not we ourselves. 
We are His people. The creation itself testifies of a Creator. We cannot disregard the divine in the creation. Without our grateful awareness of God's hand in the creation, we would be just as oblivious to our provider as our goldfish swimming in a bowl. With deep gratitude, we echo the words of the psalmist who said, O Lord, how manifold are thy works! In wisdom hast thou made them all. The earth is full of thy riches. This earth is but one of many creations over which God presides. Worlds without number have I created, he said, and I also created them for mine own purpose. And by the Son I created them, which is mine only begotten. Grand as it is, planet Earth is part of something even grander, that great plan of God. Simply summarized, the Earth was created that families might be. Scripture explains that a husband and wife shall be one flesh, and all this that the earth might answer the ends of its creation. And as part of the planned destiny of the earth and its inhabitants, here our kindred dead are also to be redeemed. Families are to be sealed together for all eternity. A welding link is to be forged between the fathers and the children. In our time, a whole, complete, and perfect union of all dispensations, keys, and powers are to be welded together. For these sacred purposes, holy temples now dot the earth. Though our understanding of the creation is limited, we know enough to appreciate its supernal significance, and that store of knowledge will be augmented in the future. Scripture declares, In that day when the Lord shall come again, He shall reveal all things, things which have passed, and hidden things which no man knew, things of the earth by which it was made, and the purpose and the end thereof, things most precious, things that are above, and things that are beneath, things that are in the earth and upon the earth and in heaven. Yes, further light and knowledge will come. The Lord said, If there be bounds set to the heavens or to the seas or to the dry land or to the sun, the moon, or stars, all the times of their revolutions, all the appointed days, months, and years, and all their glories, laws, and set times shall be revealed in the days of the dispensation of the fullness of times. Eventually, the earth will be renewed and receive its paradisiacal glory. At the second coming of the Lord, the earth will be changed once again. It will be returned to its paradisiacal state and be made new. 
there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Meanwhile, brothers and sisters, we should understand our significant responsibilities, both the creations of God and the creations of man teach us the importance of each component. Do you think that the absence of one piece of granite from the face of this building would be noticed? Of course it would. So it is with each son or daughter of God. We cannot let the head say unto the feet, It has no need of the feet. For without the feet, how shall the body be able to stand? Just as the body has need of every member, so the family has need of every member. All members of a family are to be linked, sealed, and edified together that the system may be kept perfect. The creation, great as it is, is not an end in itself, but a means to an end. We come to the earth for a brief period of time, endure our tests and trials, and prepare to move onward and upward to a glorious homecoming. Our thoughts and deeds while here will surely be more purposeful if we understand God's plan and are thankful for and obedient to His commandments. As beneficiaries of the divine creation, What shall we do? We should care for the earth, be wise stewards over it, and preserve it for future generations. And we are to love and care for one another. We are to be creators in our own right, builders of an individual faith in God, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and faith in His Church. We are to build families and be sealed in holy temples. We are to build the Church and kingdom of God upon the earth. We are to prepare for our own divine destiny, glory, immortality, and eternal lives. These supernal blessings can all be ours through our faithfulness. I testify that God lives. Jesus is the Christ and Creator. He is Lord over all the earth. He has established His Church in these latter days to accomplish His divine purposes. Joseph Smith is the great prophet of the Restoration. President Gordon B. Hinckley is his prophet today, whom I sustain with all my heart. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. It is exciting to be with you today in this beautiful conference center. I would like to give a brief synopsis of some of our beliefs to those who are learning about the Church. The situation of many of you may be like that of my deceased father-in-law, Robert E. Jones, who joined the Church in 1960. He had been raised in a wonderful Christian home where reading the Bible and adhering to Christian principles was a part of normal family life. 
At his mother's knee, he learned many truths, including the importance of having faith in Jesus Christ and following his example. As he examined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, he was able to retain truths formerly acquired while enjoying rich, a rich treasure of additional knowledge. I would like to mention ten points that he understood that can also help you. Number one, God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, have a plan of happiness for the human family. We proclaim that there truly is a God in heaven and that the human family lived with Him in a premortal existence. We are God's children. He loves us and has prepared a plan whereby, through His Son, Jesus Christ, we will enjoy blessings beyond this mortal life. These blessings include an immortal, glorious, resurrected body for all mankind and the opportunity to return to our Heavenly Father's presence as eternal families for those who have faith in Jesus Christ and are obedient to the conditions of His gospel. Number two, Jesus Christ organized His Church during His mortal ministry. The Bible helps us understand that Jesus organized His Church with apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and other Church officials who held the priesthood, which is the authority to act in God's name. Their work was to bring all men to a unity of the faith regarding Jesus Christ and His teachings. Number three, the Church of Christ and many simple truths were lost. Several Bible prophets declared that there would be a falling away from the true gospel, a time when there would be a famine regarding the, the word of God and divisions caused as grievous wolves would enter and disrupt the flock of the, or the people of the Church. These prophecies became a reality when, in the years following the Savior's crucifixion, the apostles were killed, the authority to direct the Church was eventually lost, and for many centuries, including the period known as the Dark Ages, the Church of Jesus Christ was not found on the earth. Number four, the hearts of men and a location were prepared for a restoration of the gospel. The closing of the Dark Ages took place as the Reformation unfolded, where brave men and women recognized the need to incorporate doctrines that Jesus had instituted back into the Church. We are grateful for the great Reformers such as Luther, Wycliffe, Wesley, Tyndale, and many others who helped set the stage for open religious dialogue, study of the scriptures, and the desire engendered in the hearts of good men and women for an expression of religious liberty. But their faith, their desire, their sacrifice, and even their martyrdom was insufficient to restore that which was lost. The Founding Fathers of the United States of America were inspired in drafting a constitution that guarantees religious and other freedoms for all. Religious tolerance and changing attitudes help prepare a people 
while the conditions created under the umbrella of the U.S. Constitution prepared a location where the restoration of the gospel could take place. Number five, Latter-day events were anticipated by the prophets of old. Old Testament prophets spoke of the last days as an era when all the ordinances and blessings of the gospel would be available to man. Daniel, Jeremiah, Joel, Ezekiel, Malachi, and other ancient prophets spoke of the great events that would take place in our day. Isaiah spoke of the marvelous work and wonder that would come to pass, referring to the promised restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Peter spoke of the restitution of all things in the latter days. Number six, the gospel of Jesus Christ has been restored in its fullness. We declare that the great restoration that the ancient prophets spoke of began in 1820 when the Lord called a young man named Joseph Smith to reestablish the Church. The restoration began as Joseph, perplexed by the confusion among the churches of his day, sought to know which Church was true. I solemnly declare that in a sacred grove of trees in upstate New York, this young man was visited by the Father and the Son and was told he was to join none of the existing churches. He learned that he was to be an instrument in the hands of God to again establish the Church of Jesus Christ. In time, Joseph received the priesthood of God, giving him the authority to organize the Church once again. The Church now exists with apostles, prophets, and others who have authority to administer the ordinances of the gospel. Since its organization, on the 6th of April of 1830, the Church has begun to fill the whole earth as the ancient prophet Daniel had prophesied. We now find ourselves on the threshold of unprecedented growth, where millions are receiving this good news and are joining the Church. Number seven. Another witness of Christ has been given to our generation. In 1827, Joseph Smith received ancient metal plates from which the Book of Mormon was translated. It contains a history of God's dealings with His people in ancient America and stands beside the Bible as another witness of Jesus Christ. From its pages we learn more fundamental truths about the nature of God, the mission of His Son, and His plan for His children. Number eight, the family can be eternal. An exciting truth that has been revealed again in our day is that the family is central to the Creator's plan for the eternal destiny of His children and that families can be eternal. Authority has been conferred upon man once again, whereby in sacred temples a man can be eternally sealed to his wife, a woman to her husband, parents to their children, and the extended family 
eternally linked together. Dear friends and neighbors, we know that you love your families as we love ours, and we are pleased to share these sacred truths with you. Number nine, people have been called of God to teach you. Approximately 60,000 young men and women on missions worldwide are called to teach interested parties about the doctrine of the Church. They pay their own way and for a time set themselves apart from worldly pursuits in order to teach you. If you will invite them, they will teach you and answer your questions. Number 10. You can know with assurance that these things are true, a time-tested, heaven-inspired solution to knowing the truth about the Book of Mormon or other matters is set forth by Moroni, the last Book of Mormon prophet. He said, And when ye shall receive these things, I would exhort you that ye would ask God, the Eternal Father, in the name of Christ, if these things are not true. And if ye shall ask with a sincere heart, with real intent, having faith in Christ, he will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost. And by the power of the Holy Ghost ye may know the truth of all things. My father-in-law, myself, and millions of others have put Moroni's declaration and promise to the test and found that these things are true. My sincere promise is that you can do as Moroni has prompted and experience the same rewarding result. I humbly declare that Jesus is the Christ, the literal Son of God, and that His gospel has been restored to the earth in our day for the benefit and blessing of all mankind. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. I was in a busy airport last week, and there, amidst great numbers of people rushing to catch their planes, was a father kneeling down by his son, patiently feeding him an ice cream cone, which the son was too small to hold himself. The little boy needed help because his snowsuit, which kept him warm, also made it impossible for his arms to bend. I thought to myself, what a great dad. There should be no other word that is more important to us than father or mother. And it is the word father that I would like to talk about. It's not just a matter of how to be a good father. There is plenty written and much good advice given, even at this conference. It is the commitment to be a good father that I want to talk about also. The history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from Adam and Eve and down to the present day is closely associated with father and mother and family. The introductory pages of the Book of Mormon have the great prophet Nephi, Nephi while recounting the trials and blessings of his day, 
first paying homage to his father. I, father, I Nephi, having been born of goodly parents, therefore I was taught somewhat in all the learning of my father. And having seen many afflictions in the course of my days, nevertheless, having been highly favored of the Lord in all my days, yea, having had a great knowledge of the goodness and the mysteries of God, therefore I make a record of my proceedings in my days. Enos likewise first recognized his father for the preparation he received. Behold, it came to pass that I, Enos, knowing my father that he was a just man, for he taught me in his language and also in the nurturing and admonition of the Lord, and blessed be the name of my God for it." Unquote. When the Prophet Joseph Smith first received the vision of the angel Moroni, he was instructed to tell his father, who in turn confirmed that it is true and that Joseph should follow the directions of Moroni. Even with the restoration of the gospel, the Lord did not separate a son from his righteous father. The Savior of the world, in giving us a definition of the meaning of the gospel that we find in 3 Nephi chapter 27, said simply that he came to work out the plan of salvation and give his life for the sake of all mankind because his Father sent him. The love between the Father and the Son was so perfect that the Savior gave it as his first reason for coming into mortality and the suffering he did for us in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross. The gospel is designed to teach us what to do as fathers and mothers, and it would seem that when families are intact, we may very well do good things and give as our first reason because my father sent me or because a father showed me the way. I have had the honor of working with the missionaries of the Church for over three decades now, and I know that a great many of them were able to get through those first shaky minutes and hours and days of their mission because of their father or mother. I remember one experience of a fine young man who spent his life on the ranch just as his own father did. When the boy got into the mission field, it was all strange—too many people, not enough open spaces. He wanted badly to go home. Finally, the mission president had the young missionary call his father. The father listened patiently as his son said how homesick he was, and then the father spoke in terms that his son could understand. And as I heard about this, it brought a smile to my face. He said, Son, you're just going to have to cowboy up. The boy knew exactly what that meant, and he is hanging on as the spirit of his mission begins to come. He knows his father will not give up on him. Innumerable are the numbers of those young people who did not quit and go home during those first days of being away at school or away from home the first time because of the good influence of fathers and mothers. When I sat across from President David O. McKay and was first called to this calling some 32 years ago, I remember that after we discussed 
after he discussed with me what would be expected. He then charged me to serve by asking me to carry out this calling in a way that would be pleasing to my own father. That was enough of a challenge for a lifetime. President McKay knew my father, who had been a state president for 20 years, and I looked on my father as one of the greatest men that I knew. My first understanding of how important I was to my father and how real the Savior was was when I heard him pray for us in family prayer. Now, there are some exceptions, of course, such as death and other serious circumstances. But what is needed today are fathers to commit to being fathers, whatever that might take, to assume the responsibility and to live by it, that you may become an anchor to all who come after you. If the example has not been set in your life, then reach out and try to help establish it and resolve that that example will begin with you if there is no one else. If all is not perfect in your home, then let it begin with you. It was President Harold B. Lee who said that the turning of the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers to the children was not only a commission to do work for the dead, but it also applied to the living and the importance of keeping those family relationships intact in this life. I finish with the words of the poet Edgar A. Guest, who wrote of an average, everyday man, a father, and his family. The last words of his poem say, This his praise, if praise be needed, as a father he succeeded. A father succeeds when he steps forward and accepts his commitment as a father always loving, praying, and doing what he can for his family and never giving up. May the sacred name of Heavenly Father be spoken with reverence in our homes. May the name of Father carry with it the kind of love and confidence that will bring peace and hope and righteous determination. May I add at this point my own witness and testimony as to the truthfulness of this work, adding to that which has been said from this pulpit during this great conference. I have stood with the Prophet Joseph in the sacred grove when there appeared the Father and the Son. I have sat with the saints in Kirtland when the temple of the Lord was accepted and dedicated. I received my covenants in Nauvoo. I knelt at the cemetery in winter quarters when a loved one was buried, and I also held up my arm to sustain Brigham Young as the president of the Church. I stood on Ensign Peak with Brother Brigham the day after he arrived in the valley 
when he looked over an expanse which he had already seen by revelation and knew from that experience where the temple was to be built. I know this work is true. I know God lives. I know He lives. I know God lives. I know that Jesus Christ is our Redeemer and our Savior, that the prophet Joseph saw what he said he saw, that Gordon B. Hinckley carries the keys of this great work today, and that this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. A few years ago, right before Christmas, I had a state conference assignment in California. On the flight back to Utah, I decided to take a little short nap, and my seat was C and near the aisle. And before, uh, cabin door closed, and a beautiful lady in her mid-70s stood beside me and said, May I have my seat? I said, Yes, ma'am. That was the end of my nap. And she loves to talk. And she said, I don't know why I should have to fly to a cold place like a Utah Christmas time to visit my grandchildren. I hate to leave uh, sunny California. And then she went on to say that, um, besides, there are strange and weird people in Utah. They call themselves Mormon. My daughter married one of them. I said, I'm sorry, but before you go any further, I should tell you that I'm the one of them. And then she said, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean that. And I said, oh, you really meant that, didn't you? (laughs) Our conversation went on until above the Provo, and we will be soon landing the Salt Lake. Patty, that's her name. I said, you've been talking for almost flight. I feel like I know you from the pre-Earth life. (laughs) And before we landed, Salt Lake City, and I'd like to ask you a few questions, if I may. I ask her sincerely, Patty, do you know your deceased husband, that you can see him again? And she said, oh, is that possible? Do you know that your deceased Matt, who died as a baby, You will see him also in the future. Her eyes became moist and her voice was shaking. The Spirit of the Lord touched her. I sensed that she had missed them so much. Then I prayerfully asked her, Patty, do you know you have a loving, kind, heavenly Father who loved you so dearly? She said, do I? Patty, do you know that your Heavenly Father has a special plan for you, for your family, so that you can be forever. Can we? She replied. Have you ever heard that plan before? She said, no. And very sincerely, I asked her, would you like to know about it? Yes, 
I would, she responded. The Spirit of the Lord touched her deeply, and the Lord promises us the following, For mine elect hear my voice, harden not their hearts. He also said, I am the Good Shepherd, know my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. Nephi described a desire to see the Father's dream, the tree of life, and he did. And then also he saw the beautiful baby Jesus. The angel asked, Knowest thou the meaning of the tree which thy father has seen, saw? Nephi replied, Yea, it is the love of God which sheddeth itself abroad in the hearts of the children of men. Wherefore, it is the most desirable above all things. Before we came to this earth, our Heavenly Father gently, peacefully placed our bosom, the love of God, in a Heavenly Father's eye. You are a very special child. My friend Patty has the spark of the divinity in her soul. When Patty heard the word of Heavenly Father, she was touched deeply. And she responded to his voice. We are total stranger, but the Lord placed one of his precious daughter quietly next to me. I was praying so hard, earnestly, that the Spirit of the Lord will touch her and speak to her. How can you and I share the beautiful message of the Lord Jesus Christ? First, cultivate an awareness, bring others to the knowledge. President Golden Behinkley teaches us to let there be cultivated an awareness in every member heart, member's heart and his or her own potential to bring others to the knowledge of the truth, and let him pray with a great earnestness about it, and let each member pray. And President Hinckley continued quoting the testimony of Alma, O Lord, wilt thou grant unto us that we may have a success in bringing them again unto thee? Behold, O Lord, their souls are precious, given unto us, O Lord, power and wisdom, that we may bring these our brethren. In the LDS Bible Dictionary states, The object of prayer is not to change the will of God, but to secure ourselves and for others blessings that God is already willing to grant. But that we're made that are made conditional in our asking for them. Second, a good example to our best tool. President Hinckley taught us, the most effective track we will carry will be the goodness of our own lives. Close quote. As we live the gospel, we will like the lighthouse on the hilltop, the light and the salt of the earth. We can partake of the love of God and tree of life and drink from the fountains of a living water daily by communing with our Holy Father, immersing ourselves into the scriptures and meditation. Then the Lord will bless us to be more sensitive to speak to those souls which He has prepared before us. 
Third, act as a time when you feel the Spirit. Elder M. Russell Ballard taught us the key to success in bringing souls into Christ is to act at that time when you feel the Spirit and you sense that your friends does also through our faith, our trust in the Lord, and our good works, we can bring many souls. As we seek and pray in faith, the Lord will guide us and His elect soon embrace the glad tiding of the great joy to partake the eternal and infinite atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. The missionary taught Patty three weeks later while she was staying in Utah. Patty called me. Brother Kikuchi, this is Patty. I'm going to be baptized. Would you come to my baptismal services? My wife and I went her baptism. Many members are fellowshipping well. Oh, I shall never forget her joyful countenance as she came out of the water. I shall never forget her sweet tears at the sacred altar in the Salt Temple a year later. I remember her peaceful and a celestial glow when she was a seal to her deceased husband and a son and a living daughter who had become a member of the Church. She now knows her family is forever in the Lord. My friend Patty Louise Donaldson found the Lord Jesus Christ. Now she lives in Utah. Dear my friends who are within the sound of my voice, you are a son and daughter of Heavenly Father. You were once in the Holy Presence. I know that your Heavenly Father has a special plan for you to return to live with Him. Let's go home. Let us prepare to go home to our Heavenly Father's place. My dear brothers and sisters, I testify to you. The Heavenly Father sent His only begotten Son and Jesus Christ. He died for you and me. And He said, How sore you know not. How exquisite you know not. Yea, hard to bear you know not. For behold, I, God, suffered these things for all that they might not have suffered if they would repent. Which suffering caused myself, even God the greatest of all, to tremble because of the pain to bleed at every pore, both body and the spirit. Would that I might not drink better cup and shrink. Nevertheless, glory to the Father. And I finish my preparation of the children of men. He loves you. He knows you. He lives. In 1820, Heavenly Father and His Holy Son, Jesus, came to boy Joseph and established this kingdom so that we can go home. I know that He lives. I know that President Hinckley is our prophet. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.